Ladies and gents, my name is Matt Locke and you're listening to, and perhaps watching, the Unleashing Potential podcast. It's in these episodes that I chat with a range of progressive individuals who are unleashing their potential on the world around them at work and in life. With that said, I'm glad you're here so you can join me as we take a deep dive into today's guest. Jamin, welcome to the podcast. You uh, are the founder of the Insecurity Project, and you specialize in helping entrepreneurs, leaders, and business owners eradicate insecurity so that they can show up to life unhindered by doubt, fear, and self-limiting beliefs. You're also widely recognized as one of Australia's best life coaches, and you are undoubtedly a leading voice globally on the subject of personal insecurity. And if that wasn't enough, you're also the author of Unhindered, which is a book that talks uh, to the seven essential practices for overcoming insecurity. With all of that said as an introduction, Jamin, it's great to have you here. How are you doing at your end? Yeah, thanks, Matt. Thanks for having me. It's always a real treat to be interviewed. Uh, so yeah, I'm doing well. Looking forward to the conversation. Fantastic. Um, look, I think as you and I talked about um, before today, um, I know that when I first sort of came across you, you, you approached me and I looked at your website and socials and so on, and I thought, oh, wow, it's a bit confronting um, to admit that there's a sense of insecurity, for example, in my life. And I felt, you know, and then I reflected on that. Um, and I removed, yeah, I started to remove those barriers that I felt I'd put up automatically as a sort of self-preservation mechanism. So I'm really interested to start at the beginning and understand um, even what insecurity means to you um, and how you coach around that. Yeah, well, I think it is a very vulnerable subject. Um, you know, when I branded the Insecurity Project, my business coach at the time said that I couldn't use that name just because it was too confronting and would scare <laughs> people away. People are insecure about being insecure, he said, which, which is true. Uh, but nevertheless, it's a subject that I think people suffer greatly for not knowing what to do with. And if you don't know what to do with something, then, then the best you can do is kind of manage it or, or mask it or at worst, even medicate it. So I just feel like it would be very unkind. Um, given my penchant for this subject and my the engineering kind of bent my brain around thinking clearly about it, I feel like I'm kind of ruined to talk about anything else. Uh, but to answer your question, you know, what, what is, what is insecurity? I, I think if you go really meta for a moment and just think about the human condition, I think the, uh, the best summary around, you know, our, our universal challenge as human beings is that we want to be good. Like we, we actually want to feel like we are a good, decent human being, um, but we're actually not sure that's true. Um, we look back at our life and think there's a bunch of stuff that would indicate perhaps the opposite. Perhaps there's some mistakes, failures, disappointments we've made that kind of don't look good. And so we're actually afraid that if we were to fully show up, we'd be found out as not good. There'd be some evidence that we are inadequate, that we don't deserve, that there's something wrong. Um, which is pretty catastrophic if that were true. And so for fear of that badness or inadequacy or lack of deserve ever being fully confirmed, we run or we hide. So we either try and prove that we're good by some heroic quest to demonstrate you know, how purpose-driven we are or how much we can achieve or perform. So people will look at us and go, oh, you're clearly a good person by what you can do. Um, 
what you can achieve. But if you go down that road, uh, you know, you can never rest because you're only as good as your last performance or your last achievement. And you're constantly got to be doing more to generate that feeling of being good. Um, or the other alternative is you hide. So you find a safe pocket of the world where you're never really extending yourself. So you're not at the edge anyway. So no one's really going to, you know, no one's looking anyway. So no one's going to find you out. Um, so I think that's, that's insecurity. It's just this deep angst, existential angst that perhaps if I were to be fully, fully, you know, exposed, then uh, my my nature would let me down. You'd find out I'm I'm not who you think I am. Absolutely. I, I think anyone listening to this could probably find an example in their own life if they're being really honest with themselves. Um, I know that I, mean, I certainly have insecurities, of course, um, and, and I'm reasonably aware of what they are. And I'm, but I'm sure if I was coached by yourself, I'd be able to dig deeper and uh, and and master those better or control those better. Um, but I'm sure most people listening can probably, if they're honest, relate to some example where there's an underlying fear that st is stopping them from doing something or a number of things. Um, the fear of failure the fear of being seen as a failure, the fear of not succeeding. Um, I know that with, with our business, that, that's very much true. Um, even when we're talking to prospects about, you know, coming on board and joining the community, uh, even, even there sometimes it's obvious that there are fear-based sort of limiting self-beliefs in place. So, well, I, I, I'm not good enough or uh, it's not for me because, and they sort of, give all sorts of reasons why that might be the case. Uh, I'm really interested to, and, and thank you very much for, I, I guess, giving us um, the, the anchor now around which this conversation can unfold, an understanding of insecurity. Um, what's the starting point for you when you're talking to someone, and maybe it's not someone you're yet coaching, um, but they've expressed some sort of interest, they've reached out to you, they've, they've done your scorecard or made have read your book and um, have made contact with you. How do you, how do you broach the whole topic with with people you don't yet have a relationship with? Uh, yeah, so I I like to describe most of my work as coaxing scared kittens out from under the lounge with a saucer of milk, um, <laughs> because oh boy, there's so much angst around the review of fear and the review of insecurity. It's just such a daunting topic, such a vulnerable space. It's like, ah, you know, there'd be dragons back there. I don't know what to do. It just feels too big, too scary, too overwhelming. Surely everyone's insecure. So you just, you just manage it. You don't really talk about it. You just get on with your life. So it's a big deal for someone to, you know, not run or hide, but turn and face it instead. It's kind of goes against all natural instincts, all self-preservation strategies. Um, you know, however, when, when someone is intrigued by this insecurity project work and here's something that piques their interest around a different approach to this subject. And my way in is to turn the lights on and go, could we just, could we just at least have a look at exactly what we're dealing with here? So, um, you, and you might be surprised. In fact, I, that's my pitch to you that you'll be very surprised when we can get really precise about this thing that's been terrorizing you um, it won't be what you think it is. And the closer we get to it, uh, the smaller it will become. 
I, I say to people often that fear unexamined grows. It becomes a monster. It takes on a life of its own. Uh, but fear examined is always diminished. So just the courage to have a clean look uh, about what this thing is, that is the way in, the, the precision and the accurate diagnosis around uh, what insecurity is built on. It, it's, it's the... Um, it's the way into the process because it, it gives you a sense that this is a solvable problem when you understand exactly what you're dealing with. Yeah, sure. And I mean, I wanted to ask the, the, the ultimate question is why should I care? But that, that I was thinking about that question. It's the wrong question because uh, I think a better question is what, why should I do, you know, why should I focus on this? It's easier and more comfortable to continue hiding from you know staying under mm. the couch to use your example um and just be, be the kitten under the couch in my little safe space and if i don't come out from under the, the couch nothing bad can happen to me um as i perceive it so what's the motivation for anyone to, to come yeah. out of that? So what, what's the source i guess what's the source of milk to use your example what is the source of milk yeah so you know that that is a very common feeling and attitude towards this what, what would be the point you know um you know, but that is an act that's an inaccurate perception. So I say to people all the time that just because something's killing you doesn't mean you have to pay attention to the fact that it's killing you. You know, this is how anyone smokes cigarettes. Um, it's just you don't pay attention to the cost, you don't do an accurate cost assessment. You just go, Oh, well, you know, it's just a thing, and I'm okay, and I'm kind of addicted now, and all right. But, um, you know, pra practice three in the seven essential practices is to stack the pain. So no one has ever solved the insecurity problem in their life, except from a place of great pain. And that is to get eyes on the cost. So to go, if I, if this is true, I've got these limiting beliefs, these assumptions and opinions that I'm no good. How is that actually costing me? So I feel like it's very dangerous to examine this, but maybe it's actually more dangerous not to examine this. So if I can see clearly what's what the impact of unresolved insecurity is on my life now i've just really given myself a massive motivator to make change because typically people link massive pain to self-awareness and therefore the pain of staying here is is less than the pain of change but if you can do an accurate cost assessment of unresolved insecurity you realize holy smokes this is killing me this is impacting every single area of my life uh then sure there's pain involved in change, but it's now less than the pain of staying the same. So, so one of the great motivators is, is an accurate assessment of pain. Um, and the other side is, uh, you know, a clear picture of desire. So I, you know, to desire is human. So most people have suppressed desire because it's too costly to focus on what they want. It's just like, this is not how the real world works. You don't get what you want. You get what you get. You settle, you survive. Um, but to do that consistently is to, is to deny your own humanity, suppress the very best of you. So to get back in touch with the dream that you have for your life and to realize, my goodness, you know, I will never become the person I deep down know I'm capable of being while ever I've got these all-consuming fears that I'm not good enough or I don't belong or I don't deserve, that's that's the thing standing in the way of living the life that I feel capable of. So I'll never get what I want if I don't. Uh, so that, I think they're, they're the two things that really drive up the, the reason why anyone would embark on a journey of examining and deconstructing insecurity. 
Yeah, and I think desire, um, maybe the goal setting piece um, or the desire piece, again, to use your example of um, smoking, um, as an ex-smoker, as a reforming smoker, many years ago now, um, I know that I would always go, oh, you know, oh, I'll, uh, yeah, I'm doing it now, I'll get to it, I'll get to it, I'll get to it. I just, you know, kept pushing it away, kept pushing yeah, it away, yeah. um, knowing that I shouldn't do it, knowing that there was no upside, it was ridiculous, all those things. But still, I do it and tell myself, well, I'll get to it. I'm going to stop. But it's not now. So um, is that where the desire piece comes in? Is that by getting real clarity around what the goal or the desire is? Well, it's both. Yeah, because you you will uh, you will have a clear example of this in your own life. How you actually quit smoking was was a mixture of both understanding this is costing me in every way possible. So mm. um the costs outweigh the benefits and hang on this is not really what i want for my life i can't have what i really want for my life while continuing to smoke so you would have done exactly that you same as people yeah, yeah i probably should do a work do some personal development work yeah i really probably should um investigate the stories i've told for myself but you know i don't really need to i can do that later until you get to a point where i'm like there is no later like this has to happen now i i must because these stories are ruining my life and stopping me getting what I really want. So it's exactly the same. Yeah, sure. That makes total sense. Um, look, your, your book, Unhindered, The Seven Essential Practices for Overcoming Insecurity. Number three, I think you've just talked us through about stacking the pain and getting eyes yeah. on the cost. Um, where's the starting point? I mean, are they in a sort of chronological order? Well, so they are. Is number yeah. one the starting point? They are. I'm a very logical person, very pragmatic. I have an engineering bent to my, my brain work. So I love thinking clearly. I think there's a lot of lightweight fluff in the personal development space. And uh, I just want to know, how does this work? Because if I can see how it works, I can deconstruct it. And if I can deconstruct it, well, then I can replace it. So I think insecurity is a very predictable problem. It's a very structured problem. It's not weird or mysterious or magical. It's, it's very clear how it's formed. So, so the way in practice one, stepping to the light is to name your fear. Yoda says, named must your fear be before banish it, you can. So as I alluded to before, if you could get eyes on exactly what this is, this becomes a solvable problem. Um, so just a, a quick example of that. Most people in their estimation of what they're afraid of have stopped at a level of abstraction that hasn't given them any extra skills or tools to solve the problem so they think you know i'm afraid of failing that's true i don't want to try something and not work out so i'm kind of paralyzed by this fear that it might not go how i want it to um but if you think that's the bottom of your fear if you think that's the most precise language for what you're afraid of well that's that's an alarming discovery because if you are afraid of failing the only proven way never to fail is don't try things so <laughs> that's the only way to solve that problem um, but a lot of is, for a lot of people though, that is their reality that's well exactly to. that's yeah. exactly right and the same the same is true if you think oh no it's not failure so much it's rejection that's my deep fear I, i'm afraid of putting myself out there and not being liked not being accepted you know being rejected dismissed not fitting in that's what i'm afraid of oh cool well again if that's your most honest truth around your deepest fear you're in trouble because the only guaranteed way never to be rejected is don't ever put yourself out there don't ever have an opinion that's different to someone else's or obsess about pleasing every single person you in, you encounter for the rest of your life you know both of those strategies are a nonsense 
which is good because it goes, hang on, then if the strategies are a nonsense, maybe I haven't understood the problem. And, yeah. and that's, that's my point. Of course, you haven't understood the problem. You are not afraid of failing and you are not afraid of being rejected. I promise you that is not anywhere near what you were afraid of. It's the level beneath that. It's the personal implication of failure or rejection, i.e., if I was to fail, what does that say or reveal about me? Ah, yeah, sure. It says yeah, that I am a failure. There's something wrong, something inadequate, something lacking here. Or if I was to be rejected when I put myself out there, what does that say? Mm. Well, it clearly proves that I'm, I'm no good. I don't belong. I don't deserve. So we're actually most afraid of our own opinion, our own assessment. We just don't want it confirmed by the world. So it appears the fear is out there with what others think. That's not it. It's what you think, your own opinions. That's what you are afraid of. That's the only thing you care about. And when you can see it like that, uh, it changes the game in terms of how solvable this is. And to let people off the hook a little, if they, because it may be, that, I mean, I, to be fair, some, most people who are listening to this are somehow on the path um, of self-development by default. Um, otherwise, they wouldn't be listening to this podcast. Mm. Um, but that said, there's probably, it, it can be quite confronting, can't it, to hear these things. And the, the lack of awareness around this, it's not their fault. I mean, it's the way we're brought up. Most of us are brought up in a society where it's, you don't want to be the tall poppy, particularly in Australia. That's a yeah. thing, the tall poppy syndrome. And um, it, it's somehow a societal norm, I would say. Uh, well, that's how it seems. However, that doesn't give you any value in thinking about it like that either. So No, 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 of course not. But if that's the way we're generally brought up, if we're... Yeah, to conform, to fit in, um, not to rock the boat, don't push, you know, don't poke the bear. Uh, that's typically how we're brought up. Think about it in school environments. I'm not saying it's right. I'm just saying that's, I think, well, why most people are biased this way. Yeah, and I'm sorry, sorry to, um, to uh, enforce this point here, but it is everything about this, the insecurity project, because... Um, that is a common way of understanding what the problem is. You know, if you if you go practice one step into the light, what's the problem? Well, it's your own opinion of you. Um, that's the heart of this. Okay, then the next thing is, well, where do those opinions come from? And most people go, well, of course. Of course I've got these opinions because that's society. That's how I was brought up. That's what I was taught. That's what I was modeled. That's what people said. That's what people told me. So, okay, well, yeah, the part it is what it is. That's how it happened. So what am I supposed to do other than now manage these opinions I've formed? Whereas, um, uh, you know, practice too is, is around responsibility. And the heart of it is to break through the trap of misdirection. So um, a magician's only trick, well, as far as I can tell, you know, there's no magicians really doing anything supernatural, but um, <laughs> you know, the, average, the average magician is only working with misdirection, i.e. if I can have you fully paying attention to my left hand, I can get away with anything in my right hand. And so there's no magic here. It's just you're distracted. You know, I, I had this, still had this uh, latex thumb um, that I could hide a, a red cloth up inside and, and the kids were just always astounded that I could make this cloth appear and disappear by, they didn't know I was hiding it in my thumb. Is that, is that how um, they do it, is it? So, <laughs> but, oh, you mean magic's not real? Well, sorry. <laughs> but, but so, you know, the whole thing was that they don't, 
think that it's a thumb because they're never looking there. I'm distracting them by looking somewhere else. And when my daughter one time was standing behind me watching me do the trick for my son and his mates, she was like, what's that thing on your thumb, dad? And then it's obvious. It's, you know, it sticks out an inch longer than my my thumb. It's the wrong skin shade by three tones. (laughs) It looks hideous. So the moment you see where the action's really happening then the trick's over. Uh, So this this is the real challenge around where people get stuck. And this is the heart of practice too. Once you've identified you've got an opinion problem is to realize how was this opinion created? Uh, and the misdirection is to feel like, oh yeah, it was created by what was said to me, done to me, not said to me, not done to me. You know, therefore I am a product of the world I grew up in. Um, that's actually not true. That's not where the magic happened. I, I love Don Miguel Ruiz's book, The Four Agreements. I think it, it is true. The subtitle, A Book of Wisdom. I, I think that is an accurate assessment of that that book. It's an it's a brilliant contribution. But he says, you, you know, look, our life is not shaped by the words spoken to us, um, just just by the ones we agree with. So we're actually implicit in our own structure. We we are not the actor in the story. We're the storyteller, and that's not to blame the child. Uh, going through these experiences it's just to highlight um we've we've always had the pen we we are the ones agreeing or disagreeing we are the ones forming our own opinions we're sense making creatures we go into the world we have experiences but we get to decide what they mean so no one has the power to bless us or curse us without our permission no no society no culture no parents no upbringing no teacher can actually just impose a set of beliefs it might look like that but that's misdirection the real mechanics and the real action of what's happening is young people are agreeing, are buying into an ideology, a thinking, a, a way of being and accepting it. And therefore they are creating their own map of the world. So a subtle difference, but, an, but a breathtaking difference, like a very empowering one, because if you were the one that created your own opinions, well, then you are the only one who can change them. You don't need to wait for society to change or someone else to give you permission or some kind person to tell you you're awesome, you know, or a bully to apologize or someone to make it up to you. It's, it's all you here. So you have the power. I, uh, I love it. And please never, um, you're quite the gentleman, but please never apologize for pushing back with anything I'm saying, because uh, <laughs> that's why we're here at the end of the day. And I think I'm fairly typical. Um, so in terms of not being wise in this arena which is why it's great to have the opportunity to speak with you so please yeah put your big boots on and wade in <laughs> no well, problem for me <laughs> this is just the you know this is the heart of the insecurity project this is a solvable problem not only can you solve this you must it is your most important adult work to go back and review the narratives of your child to go back and review the things you agreed with the assumptions you formed the sense you made of disappointment and heartache and failure when you were young because it's in the personalization of those painful moments that you cursed yourself you created a limit on your experience you decided that because it went that way it must have been a reflection of your nature and your value and your worth. And then you double down those opinions and those assumptions and those agreements. And then that's how you've lived your life, assuming your map of the world is true and accurate, but it's not, you know, it's a work of fiction told by a scared kindergartner, um, you know, just trying to cope with the challenges of life. So even the best stories told by a kindergartner are still weird. Like none of them are true. So this is the great irony. People are terrified about going back, um, assuming they're going to find something real. But there's nothing real back there. It's just 
you know, the work of fiction told by a kid. So in every case, when you go back and review the data, you realize the stories you've told are outdated, misinformed, um, simple, overly simplistic, uh, based on limited data. So they're all, all to be updated. And that's the point. That's your adult work is to free yourself from those assumptions and improve them not just for your sake, not just for your family's sake, not just for the work you're doing sake, but for the whole world. Like when adults come into the world compromised by these disempowering narratives, you know, you weaken the collective consciousness of the planet. This is how the world is healed by adults who, who do the healing work on their own self and come into the world then with nothing to prove and nothing to defend and then free to really show up as themselves. And I have to say this feels incredibly profound. Um, and for that, I'm grateful. And there's a subtlety, which I just want to, I guess, put a spotlight on, um, because the subtitle of your book is The Seven Essential Practices for Overcoming Security. And we're, we're stepping through the seven, um, but they are practices, aren't they? It's not sort of seven steps, the seven. It, they really are practices. And that gives the impression that these are things which they require awareness, they require work. And I assume ongoing work, their practices, a bit like a meditation practice or a yoga practice. Um, so really important distinction here. You know, the aim of the game is to completely eradicate insecurity from your current level of growth. So you can show up here, present and unguarded. So that means actually solve it, not just manage it. Uh, however, if you do that and when you do that, you will therefore naturally take new territory in life. You'll explore bigger games to play in, bigger rooms to, to be with, you know, new games to play. And therefore you will encounter new levels of uncertainty and therefore bang your head on uh, new assumptions that are now in the way, new insecurities. And so the same seven practices that got you free that solved the problem at the last level of growth will again solve it at the next level of growth. So they're practices in season until you're free and then you don't you don't need to practice it when you're free these are practices for when when it's appropriate so that's the distinction rather than again as people assume um you know lifelong work forever managing this forever you know the tendency is to always go back into these things so you'll always have to be managing your own narratives not true your work is to deconstruct the narrative so they don't actually make sense anymore they're not real for you um you know, new data makes old data obsolete. I, when I was young, I used to think the round cycling track was called a melodrome. And I was sure that that assumption was accurate and true. And that's how I said it in my mind. It's how I said it out loud until someone said melodrome. What do you, it's a velodrome. Like, oh, that's embarrassing. <laughs> and then, then it's like, well, now with that information, uh, I can never say melodrome again. Cause I know it's not real. It's not true. So it's not like I have to remind myself every day for the rest of my life. It's not a melodrome. It's a velodrome. It's like eh, the bubble has burst. That story does not make sense. Um, I've just updated to a better map of the world, a more accurate truth. So cool. Um, that's now how I'll live my life. Velodrome from here on in. Yeah. Great example, actually. Um, so, all right. Practice one step into the light. Yes. Um, Stack the pain was number three or get eyes on the cost. Um, number two was take hundred percent responsibility. So that's the kind of understand uh, that although it looked like these opinions were formed by society or culture or parents or schools or bullies or 
whatever. And no, you, you are not the actor in a story being written by someone else. You are the storyteller. So you created these opinions and maybe it was all you could do at the time. So again, there's no blame there, but it's just to highlight the heart of where the activity took place and to emphasize you're the hero in this story, right? You created this mess. You already know how to tell stories. You've been telling stories your whole life. So of course you could change those stories because you wrote the first version and the second version. So I, okay, you've got this. Um, yeah. So that's, that's practice two responsibility. Excellent. Um, so number three, uh, stack the pain, get eyes on the cost. An ac- accurate cost assessment, which is, yep. which is counterintuitive because you, you're going to want to avoid pain and pretend that it's not costing you. But if you're willing to be courageous and, and tell the truth, then you'll realize, oh, look at this. These unresolved opinions of myself are robbing me in every area of my life, um, which won't feel fun. That'll feel really, really discouraging and upsetting, but but a lovely gift because pain is designed to protect you from further pain. So if you switch off the pain signals, now you've got no protection for worse pain down the future. Um, How do you help help coach your clients... um to break through that natural tendency to avoid the pain, to avoid the confrontation of that? Well, you know, so, so we'll get to practice five, but just to preempt that there, get help from someone who doesn't care about you. That is a very important part of this process because... <laughs> Fantastic. Well, it just... If I, you know, when they reach out to me as a coach and I go, look, you can't confuse me as someone who gives a shit about you. Like, I know I look like a guy who cares and I sound like a guy who cares, but... I will forget about you. I won't lose any sleep about you, you know, over your, your problems. I'm not the one with the problem here. My life's fine. I'm not insecure. I've solved this problem for me. So I don't need anything from you. Um, I don't want anything for you. You can't please me or disappoint me. So I'm just here to help you get more of what you want, but you've got to want it because me wanting it for you is not only useless, it's a judgment. So let's not do that. So when, when we establish that space, that clean space, the dispassionate observer, um, just here to serve, then you get to have some pretty direct conversations with people. And the things I get away with saying, you, you, like, oh boy, you couldn't say in any other space, no way in the world. So it's a very truth-telling space. It's just, you know, I, I get to say to people all the time, um, just be an accurate mirror. People say, oh, you know, I don't, you know, I don't like this situation. I'm really dissatisfied. I, this is not working for me. And I go, what do you mean it's not working for you? You've been doing it for 30 years. How is that possible? You love this. You love being anxious. You, you love being treated poorly. You, you know, you love having a pity story to tell. That's how you validate your whole existence. I don't care, by the way, but let's just tell the truth. So <laughs> it's a very confronting space. Yeah, liberating, huh? I imagine. Well, of course, of course, liberating because you kind of go, hang on a minute, and I created this? Wow, okay. So if I'm already the creator of this experience and I'm already exactly where I've chosen to be, well, then I could make other choices, surely. So show me more, tell me more. Let's let's keep the lights on and see all of how this works. Um, very, very empowering, very confronting, uh, but very clean because there's no vested interest. So uh, back to your initial question, how do you help someone break through the natural natural aversion to pain? Well, you create a clean space where you're able to tell the truth. And then, you know, it's just like a business that's trading insolvently. 
You could trade insolvently for 10 years just by not telling the truth, just by pretending things are better than they are, just by having this, no, 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 like it's we're getting there. No, it's just breakthroughs just around the corner. And, you know, I, I just get a sense that this thing's going to work. Someone sits you down and go, can we just have a look at the numbers here? This is actually not working. Like, and it's not going to work. This is, you know, you're doing something illegal here. <laughs> this is to face the music. It's like, oh my goodness, that's horrible. But okay, now we've seen the truth. Okay, well, okay. Well, this, there's no denying what's actually real here. So the same with people. It's like, oh no, it's, it's, I'm getting there. I'm No, no, I'm, I'm actually making progress. No, you're not making any progress. None at all. In fact, you're going backwards. Your relationships are getting worse. Your health is deteriorating. Your finances are floundering. You have no sense of purpose. Like you're stuck. It's like, uh, boy, that is actually true um never heard myself say that out loud but it's true okay if it's true then then let's hold the space around it being true and let that truth create a massive motivation to to do something different so this mm. doesn't remain true so that was okay so step four then and my apologies for inadvertently uh, missing <laughs> before what, what happens uh, practice number four well, so Anthony Robbins has done some great work around pleasure and pain being the two great motivators. Everything we do is either an attempt to avoid pain or pursue pleasure. So, you know, practice three is to get eyes on the cost and be motivated away from insecurity. Um, but if you just have your change strategy to get away from pain, then the massive motivation you feel to do something different will generate massive action. But that massive action will create massive results, which, which will then dial down the pain and therefore the motivation also. And then six months later, you'll be back to where you were. You'll have just done enough to get out of pain and then you'll stop. So practice four is to develop a compelling vision for your life. So don't just get eyes on what you don't want. Get eyes on what you do want instead. What's the dream? What's the desire? If you could have anything in your life, what, what anything would you want? Um, you know, this model, you know, loosely follows the hero's journey, which was Joseph Campbell's great work in the 1950s to deconstruct storytelling and create this map around stories that motivate us. Um, but the hero's always got to have a quest. There's, they've got to be trying to do something. There's some ambition for some meaning and purpose. Uh, otherwise, what's the point? You know, what's the point of coming out of the land? What's the point of facing fear? What's the point? If Frodo is not compelled to rid the world of the ring, why is he getting attacked by orcs every day? Like, why is his life on the line? You know, go back to the Shire, Frodo. Go back to where it's safe. It makes no sense to be risking everything if you don't have a very compelling reason. So, uh, you know, they're all difficult stages, but I think practice four is particularly difficult because most people have been pretending for so long they don't know what they want or they don't want anything and so they've really turned the desire button off uh, so that can take a little bit of coaxing uh, but I never believe someone when they say they don't know what they want or they don't want anything that's just not true it, it's impossible it's just they're afraid of the implications of wanting again it's gonna it's gonna increase their chance of failure or rejection or exposure it's going to increase conflict in their world it's going to cause them to come face to face with the discrepancies in what others want for them so it's a it's a problematic uh, you know thing to explore uh, however all change all improvement all growth all innovation comes from that question what do you want like that's the adult question that's the central human question around being an adult human being it's just one of you you're valuable and worthwhile. What do you want to do with what you've been given? Where, where you're taking this thing? 
what's what are you pursuing what what gives meaning in life to you absolutely i mean that that's huge i'm guessing that practice five sort of getting advice from someone who doesn't care about you i'm assuming four and five work hand in hand because i guess when someone as you say most people go well i don't know what i want or mm. um you're able once you've got very clear about you know, you've created this truth-telling space mm. then you're able to call bs on that and really poke oh. the bear and coax out of them the honest answer rather than the pre-programmed answer yeah exactly right and often people have the pre-programmed answer when they start that and i'll just go i'm bored like really you can have anything in the world and that's what you want rubbish <laughs> that's ridiculous i don't believe you i'm bored can we stop talking about it you know so just that's <laughs> okay i'm just not telling the truth there's no way that's that's it um interestingly when when a person has shut this down for so long often the way in is uh with the silly ideas exercise so i, I and i still use that by the way um you know my journaling two or three times a week I, you know I, I nice pen blank page um and i and i go okay jamin silly ideas only if you have anything in the world what anything would you want and and there's no the way i play that game is there is no accountability or responsibility for anything i write on that page so swing away like just have fun and and the interesting thing about that exercise is um you can't really tell the difference between silly ideas and honest ideas when you first write them the fear people have when when this kind of what do you want is like the moment my pen hits the page and i write something now i'm accountable and responsible for what i just said so now i'm gonna to have to go do that it's like no that's not how this works just open the box have fun swing away um, and it's only when you start to see some repetition in these silly ideas that you start paying attention you know all my best ideas in life have started out as silly ideas every single one of them was an impossibility was a ridiculous thing was was weird and improbable and unrealistic and strange but there was something compelling about it something's like i i actually want that and the first time i heard myself say i want to be the best coach in the country i'm like what is the silliest thing i've ever heard you like and you come from goldman like what what are you gonna do Oh, good. Yeah, good luck with that. <laughs> silly, silly idea. Um, but then then it just keeps popping up. Like, what is that? Why is that in your heart? Why does that keep coming up? Why have you chosen being a coach? Like, if you can have silly ideas, so why haven't you chosen you want to play quarterback for the New England Patriots? Or, you know, you'd, you'd love to uh, be, be point guard alongside LeBron James or... Like, why have you chosen this space? What is it about that? And so the more I lean into that, I go, there's something honest and pure about that desire. That's, that, that seems like what I was born to do. And it would be very unkind to not want that. Um, be very unkind yeah, not to give my, my whole heart that. But it started out as a very, very silly idea. You know, same as moving my family to Germany for nine months to see if it was possible to have time, money, and mobility. Tim Ferriss is great, you know, a hypothesis in the four hour work week. I'm like, that's ridiculous. Imagine if it was true. I don't know. There's only one way to find out move my family to the other side of the world, cut off my ability to have local clients, see if it's possible. What a silly idea. That's so impractical. Who could ever do that? And, and then, you know, 12 months later, after first writing that down, we're on a plane moving to the other side of the world to see if it's true, see if it works out. 
So yeah. brilliant experience. But so Adam, interest um, in our pre-chat today, and we're obviously not going to name who it was, but a, a mutual friend of ours um, whose opinion we hold in high regard recently made some reference to you in terms of your coaching uh, status, I suppose, in, in, in his eyes. Mm. Um, and that was that if he had the choice to be coached by either Tony Robbins or you, he would choose you. And he made that statement quite publicly. Mm. How did that make you feel then? How did that make you feel? Uh, it was a special thing to have happen. Um, an emotional thing to have happen. And you know, one of the interesting things around having a compelling vision for your life and some of the mechanics around that is, is that um, uh, the be, do, have model is, you know, that's been game changing. And, and have we got time for me to just quickly explain yeah, that? Yeah, of course, absolutely, all the time um, in the all world. Right, all right, so three ways that people live in, in general. Um, the, the victim, the worker, or the winner. So, so the victim orients their life, have, do, be that they kind of like, you know, when I have enough time, when I have enough support, when I have enough energy, when I have enough money, when I have enough skill, you know, when I have the right conditions, then I'll do the thing I've always wanted to do and then I'll be happy and successful. The problem is I don't have any of those things. So I'm waiting. And I'm also comparing myself to the people who clearly do have those things. So if I had what that person had, then of course I'd be doing what they're doing and then I'd be as successful as them, but I don't. So it sucks to be me, hard life, and hopefully my fortunes will change sometime in the future. So lots of people stuck in that victim have to be cycle. They wait for the rest of their life. And then there are others that go, no, no I'm not waiting for anything. I'm working. So they orient their life uh, do have be. So they are like, cool. The more I do, then the more I'll have. And the more I have, the happier I'll be. So they're just head down, bum up, doing the do, working hard, just this is how you succeed in life. You just get it done. You just work harder than the next person. You drive, you force, you fight. And so, cool, it turns out the more you do, sure, the more you have. Um, the problem is uh, the more you have, the more there is still to have. And now the more there is to lose. And the more you do, the more there is still to do. So you get stuck in this doing and having loop and the being never eventuates. It's always the next having will be, will be the one that makes you happy. And so you work for the rest of your life and you never enjoy the success you dreamed of. It's just, it's elusive. And the winner by far the most rare and because it's so counterintuitive and countercultural is that they live, be, do, have. So they're not waiting and they're not working. Uh, you know, to reference Stephen Covey, they begin with the end in mind, one of the habits of highly effective people. And so they, they're clear about what they want, but then they go be that person now before they have any right to be before anyone else is saying it about them. They talk to themselves like they already are that person, like they dress like that person, they walk like that person, they live as though that's already where they are. And then they go do what that person would do and then they end up having what that person would have. And so, you know, I remember walking around my water tank, which is my sacred space for kind of first creation work and, and hearing myself actually agree that, uh, okay, uh, this feels true and honest, I'll, I'll be the best coach in the country that's actually where I'm heading. And no one else is saying that about me. Not, no one's even thinking that about me. That's a very interesting thing to say, but uh, it's the thing I'm going to say about myself. And being the best coach in the country, then what would I be doing? Great, I'll, I'll go live like that guy and then eventually I'll have that. And so, you know, that was 10 years ago that I said that and no one has ever got close to saying that's true. Um, 
but I've seen that in my world. That's how I've lived. That's how I've shown up. That's all that I've thought about. And and so then someone else of, of note says that about me. It's like extraordinary. I've always known that were true, um, but I haven't seen the evidence of that in the real world yet until now. So the fulfillment of of living um, be do have. So it was a really extraordinary experience to have that happen. Very, very special and kind of confirmed the wonder of that way of living. Yeah, no, fantastic. I appreciate you going through that. I think that helps to, to make it very clear. And I think anyone listening to this who's really listening will have just decided um, that which one of those they're currently predetermined as a mindset at least. Um, yeah. And that, I mean, that might be confronting, but it's valuable to have that level of insight and self-reflection, of course. Um, so practice six, so five commingled for sure, um, with developing a compelling vision for your life. Um, and that's supported by getting advice from someone who doesn't care about you. So practice six. Yeah. Well, so practice five is, is kind of, you encounter the wisdom character, which is a central component of the hero's journey. There's always a Gandalf, a Yoda or a Dumbledore, a Mr. Miyagi, yep. um, but they're <laughs> not the hero and, and they're always gone too soon. It's not Mr. Miyagi who's fighting the bullies. It's it's Daniel's son. And he's a weedy guy that you think, how is he ever going to do that? It's not Gandalf that's going to destroy the ring. He's he's gone. And you think, Gandalf's gone. How is Frodo supposed to do that? He's a hobbit from the Shire. It's just, but that's why we watch movies like that because it's so improbable that the hero's actually got what it takes to save the day. Um, but they're the hero. So what to go back and confront your narrative, your assumptions, your opinions, which you've doubled down on over your life and generated mountains of evidence that it's true, to actually go back and confront that, it feels like certain death. It's an impossible task. But eventually, there's only you, there's only one way forward. Like you've come so far through this process, giving up now and turning back doesn't ease any of the pain. You know, there, there comes a moment in the hero's life where you, whether you either die or you come out the other side reborn. That's, that's the only two options. So you've got to go into the cave and face the monster. Um, and sure, uh, this might be where it all ends. If it is a monster and it is true and you are worthless, you don't belong, there's something something wrong, well, you'll know for sure and at least you'll know. Um, however, if you go in there and confront, that, confront this and discover uh, it is a work of fiction, it's all it's all imagination, it's not true, it's, it's the sense-making of a child, and you see it for what it is. You you come out the other side transformed, and and so the practice six be the hero is all the conversations have happened, all the coaching, all the you know the patterns, the the language, the tools. Now you got to go do the work. <laughs> like no two ways about it. You've actually got to go face the thing you're most afraid of, and um, high stakes, very very high stakes, but not really. Only high stakes in your imagination because of course you're enough you know you just then this is the this is the beautiful thing if you really get nuanced around insecurity because um often i hear people describe insecurity as you know it's the fear of not being enough in some form or other that's not true it's the fear of the opinion of not being enough you've never actually looked <laughs> like you don't know whether you're enough or not. So you can't, like the moment you call it the fear of not being enough, it's a thing now. It's a monster. It's real. Mm. And you can't afford to go and examine that because that monster will consume you. But when you frame it as I'm afraid of the opinion of not being good enough, well, opinions are the lowest form of knowing anything. 
you know, therefore the easiest thing to change. So maybe that opinion's not true. Okay, well then let's go have a look. And, you know, just like a loving parent when their son or daughter comes in the middle of the night terrified there's a monster under the bed, they're not actually afraid of the monster under the bed. They're afraid of the thought that there is a monster under the bed. So a loving parent comes and turns a light on and go, well, let's have a look. And if there is a monster, sure, we'll burn this house down and move to Tahiti. Um, but if there's no monster um, and we've proven that true, you can go back to sleep. You're okay. So that's the hero work. No one's coming to save you. No one can tell you that. You know, if this opinion problem of yours could be solved by someone telling you how awesome you are, your mum would have fixed this insecurity problem years ago. <laughs> this is all you and you got to got to go face it. So that's practice six. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that sounds exciting, frankly. Um, it sounds like a very exciting practice to go through. Uh, and number seven, where do we oh, go have, after that? Yeah, having deconstructed the old story and proven that it is a work, it is indeed a work of fiction um, written by a scared kindergartner. Now you're free to use the pen again. And now you can actually rewrite the story. You can create new opinions about you, empowering narratives. You can write the story how you'd like it to go as an adult. Um you know, people, when they hear this, often want to rush to practice seven and go, hey, I get it. So affirmations are my mirror. I'll be kind to myself, create new opinions about how good I am now, which you're welcome to do. And don't let me stop you doing that by any means. Uh, however, if you haven't first deconstructed the old narrative, then the moment you get tired, stressed, triggered, ang you know, anxious, then that old story comes out and takes over like it always has. So your work is to deconstruct it first, then you're free to use the pen again and align yourself to a beautiful and compelling narrative that's now your default. Yeah, I guess otherwise the risk is like so many people who go on diets with air quotes, you know, they, they lose weight while they're dieting and then they put weight back on and then they go back on a diet and so on. Um, not actually resolving the source of the issue uh, exactly. at its most foundational level. Mm. No, very good. Um, look, I uh, appreciate um, deeply, and I could happily talk about this stuff all day with you, um, but we're sort of coming up on time. Um, and I'm interested uh, if there are any particular areas you feel we haven't given at least a taste. I mean, you know, we can only do so much in a single sitting. And here we've kind of gone through all seven practices. And I know that you could easily deep dive on each of those. Um, but in big picture stuff, um, for those who are listening to this, it's their first introduction to you. They're probably, um, if they've got to this far in the episode, then for sure, I'm guessing there's some self-reflection um, has taken place or is taking place. What would be your advice to them um, at this point if this has kindled their interest mm. um, and some self-reflection has already taken place? Um, I think talking about the the role of courage is is probably an important place to wrap up. Um, there, there are a number of people who've described, you know, 10 seconds of courage as a really important thing and, and actually all that you need. I think that's true, especially when it comes to insecurity. You only actually need courage to begin this process and then kindness takes over from there. So the actual first step of going, okay, I, this feels insurmountable. It feels overwhelming, but I'm, I'm going to lean into this. The moment you actually get over that hump of a decision to go, I'm going to face my fear, then you realize that if this is true, that this is based on an, an assumption or an opinion made by a scared kid, that 
it would be very unkind to leave that child with those assumptions in place. If you saw some other kid, you know, you watched a kid have his parents get divorced and he just looking at the mechanics of his heart and emotions going like blaming himself, assuming this is a reflection of him implicating himself in that pain. You'd be going, Oh no, it's a misunderstanding. It's not about you. Like that has nothing to do with you. This is not a reflection of your worth. Um, I can see you taking it personally, but it's not you. You would just be compelled with kindness to bring more data to that child and help them see a better map of reality. And so when you realize there's a wounded child stuck in your past too, uh, you realize it would be incredibly unkind to not go back and review the data with that child, um, not just for yourself, but for the world. Like this is a work of great kindness for you because if you've never resolved these insecurities, you've never shown up. And so you're robbing the world of the wonder of who you really are. That's, that's unkind. You're robbing your kids, you're robbing your partner, you're robbing your business, and you're robbing the world of the wonder of a unique, wonderful human being. So um, that's not courage to do that. It's just courage to start. Then it's kindness. It's just the, the kindest thing you could do would be to resolve and, and remove insecurity from your life for the sake of the world. That's uh, incredibly profound. And uh, as you say, a, a very natural and powerful way to, to kind of wrap this conversation around the subject. And uh, Certainly, for those listening, thank you. If you've enjoyed this episode, um, I really would encourage you to go ahead and share it uh, with anyone you feel would benefit from it uh, or would relate to it. For sure, leave us a review on whichever platform you're using. Uh, it, that really helps more than you know. Jamin, my thanks to you. We're going to be posting all of the various links um, to your, your website uh, where people can also grab a copy of the book, um, your socials, everything. Uh, anyone who wants to... I mean, what's your preferred way? If someone wants to reach out and, and get in contact with you, what, what would be your preferred way? I mean, I think the website, um, you know, the insecurityproject.com or jamonfraser.com, then you get a, you know, access to a range of resources as an insecurity test. If you're kind of like, oh, I don't know if I'm insecure, is that actually my problem? Well, there's a couple of fun tests to take. One to kind of get eyes on the impact of insecurity on your life. The other to get in eyes on the impact of insecurity on your business. So that's that's a, an interesting way into the process to see some metrics and some data around this. And then and maybe the book might be an interesting next step if you think uh, that diagnosis is accurate. Fantastic. Jamin, thank you again. And to those listening, until next time, get gritty about kicking your goals and go make an impact on the world. <laughs>